Fantasy-animation.org is a completely free online educational resource dedicated to examining the relationship between fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. Our weekly blog posts are written by professional animators and academics and explore a range of diverse topics from the sexual identity of SpongeBob SquarePants to the practical reality of how to make an animation documentary on a pair of knickers. Our podcasts, just like this one, feature expert guests including Oscar-winning animators, esteemed academics, folklorists and fans, all of whom help take Chris and I on a seemingly never-ending journey through the history and theory of these two overlapping media, mediums and genres. To find out more, visit fantasy-animation.org. I hope you enjoy the show. listeners and welcome to another episode of the fantasy animation podcast this week i am both from the future and the past and sort of in the present at the same time but not necessarily this present and i still think my name's alex Sargent, uh, and i'm chris holiday but i might also uh, could be uh, ulrich nielsen magnus nielsen or peter doppler depending depending on what season of the show we're about to talk about we're in um we're here to talk about dark a, a german language netflix show that um premiered in 2017 i believe through to 2020 um and was a sort of hit for the station um really fascinating piece of work that um exemplifies a number of um sort of traits in terms of science fiction's capacity to play with ideas of time um the philosophy of time and and um as well as sort of some long-standing academic debates surrounding television seriality and complexity on television um so i've got loads to talk about how about you chris I also have loads to talk about. I'm interested in sort of, I think, digital realignment and perhaps the idea of chaos. Uh, I was thinking kind of through chaos when I was watching each of the three seasons and the, the, the way in which these are, these are worlds that are formed by both kind of chaotic projections and, and conjoined spaces of, of different media. And so, yeah, I think that fuels the, the, the sort of theme of the, of the programme, which is obviously around time travel and, and, and existentialism. And so, yeah, it's, there's a, I'm daunted by what's about to, to come, but um, excited nonetheless. Well, to help guide us through the complexity of the show and some of the ideas it raises um, is our very special guest, uh, Nicholas Loy, who was the VFX supervisor on um, Dark uh, whilst working for Rise um, VFX. Um, Nicholas has worked on other big uh, Hollywood productions in the past, like a few Marvel films, uh, one of the Fast and the Furious franchise, and uh, the recent uh, live-action Dumbo, I believe. Um, but Nicholas is here to talk to us about um, his role in helping create the mystery and wonder that is Dark. So Nicholas, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. <laughs> thanks for coming on, Nicholas. Um, let's start with at the beginning, I guess, if such a thing can be done when we're talking about Dark. Um, how did you come to start working on Dark? Um, what was your, what's the story behind your involvement in the show? Um, and what, you know, what are you, what's, what VFX, um, did, what VFX work did you mainly sort of um, undertake as you sort of... Um, joined this world i believe sort of partially through um the, the sort of run of the show if i'm if i'm not mistaken sure um yeah that kind of depends on how early you want to start um so basically i, I started my career let's start there as a compositing artist um after so i studied design and all that kinds of stuff and i was uh, working on film sets uh, doing 
um, basically um, as a production assistant, more or less. That's where I started off, like uh, cook, making coffee, basically. <laughs> um, and and then I switched into post-production editing. And then I basically, at some point, I ended up studying. And um, compositing was basically what fascinated me most because of this. Um, yeah, because, I mean, it's the last step in the VFX process um, since you're the one finishing the shot. And that was something that I always found fascinating, um, basically being able to fine-tune um, the shots until they look pretty. And um, yeah, so I started off working uh, freelance um, for different German companies mostly um, and different different productions. You mentioned um, yeah some of the Marvel, Marvel movies, for example. Um, and then I basically... I got an offer to be compositing supervisor at um, RiseFX in Berlin. And um, yeah, basically I gladly took that offer and um, was uh, supervising some uh, some shows. I think, yeah, one, so Ant-Man basically. Um, and I mean, not the whole show, but of course only uh, the sequence that we were working on at Rise. So um, yeah, and then um, basically uh, Dark, so the team behind Dark, um, the director, DOP, etc., they all come from um, the, um, the Hochschule für Film und Fernsehen in Munich. That's uh, the Munich uni Film University, basically. Um, and for them, it was the first um, big Netflix production, basically. And they were like their team, I think. They didn't have so much experience with uh, with visual effects, and they were also looking for a local um, vendor to work on it um, due to just due to the personal um, contact to be able to call and talk about um, things uh, in your native language as well. I guess it makes things easier. Um, so they approached Rice, and um, uh, Rice uh, worked on the first season. I was involved in a different project, so I didn't really work on the first season. I was. I think I was helping out on one like one day on set, but apart from that, I wasn't involved. And then when the second season um, started, they basically asked me whether I, if I want to um, take on the challenge and be VFX supervisor. So it was my the second season was my first project as a VFX supervisor as well. Well, well, I've already got two uh, questions to unpack there. Uh, first is my, you know, it's a practitioner episode, everybody. So Alex asks stupid questions. Um, so comp composition editor, talk, talk me through exactly what that is, because it's not a title I'm that familiar with. I'm, I'm guessing by your description, it's it's the process basically at the end where the effects are kind of finished to, to completion. But maybe I'm sure some listeners would like to know a little bit more about what that job entails and and what kind of uh, things you've, you've been you've done in your career and then I'd love to talk about that journey because actually when I heard that you joined in season two stupid me I assumed that's because season one you know plot spoiler it doesn't really take place in overtly fantastical places and therefore there probably wasn't much VFX but it sounds like that of course wasn't the case so let's perhaps just start by telling us about um, composition editing and then perhaps um, were you aware of the work going on at Vise what sort of stuff were they doing on season one sure um, so I think I mean the correct term would basically be compositing artists or compositor um, it's often confused because it, it sounds like you have something to do with music maybe <laughs> with, with, with compositioning and I don't know, um, but it's it's basically compositing, which um, is um, the last, or it is the, the step where you 
you um, collect everything that's been done in the VFX process. So all the different footage, if you have um, green screen footage, if you have a background plate, if you have um, CG renders, for example. So you collect everything that's everybody, that everybody in a VFX studio has done or that was shot on set and uh, you combine it uh, to the final shot. And then basically you're responsible for the last, um, so first of all, making it in ideally photo real, I guess, in most cases. So you have to make sure that the CG footage um, matches the exposure, the brightness, the black levels, the colors, the color temperature, etc., cetera, um, of um, the plate that was shot. And um, there, there are lots of um, steps, basically, where you send out the shot to the director or the, um, the show's VFX supervisor. And, um, and then as a, as a compositor, you basically you go through all these iterations and move things around or make them brighter. Or um, oftentimes, certain CG steps, it depends on the VFX supervisor and the director as well, but sometimes um, people like... Um, so supervisors and directors like um, judging the material on the final image. So sometimes you have a CG render, but it doesn't get looked at because it's too abstract and it doesn't have the, the correct colors, etc. So people want to see it in the finished shot. So you composite it together and then, um, and then only then the director maybe says something like, yeah, the, I don't know, the, the spaceship has to have a different color and then it goes back to a certain department and so on. Um, yeah, so that's that's basically compositing, okay. and um, the the first season, yeah, it, it basically um, from season one to season three, um, with the director and the whole um, crew getting more and more comfortable with using visual effects, they also wanted to try out more stuff, and uh, it was an interesting journey because, um, yeah, so basically they started off very don't want to say naively, but they they really were like, what can we do? What What is possible? Like they couldn't even, I guess they couldn't even 100% say what they wanted because they didn't exactly know yet what was possible. And then it pr it's probably also a thing due to budget since it was a pilot and nobody knew whether it was going to be successful or not. Um, so in the first season, um, the visual effects... Um, were um, so there was one portal and at the end there was this black dome that, were, that we see more often than later on um, those were like the bigger effects or the, I think the more obvious things mm -hmm. but then for example the nuclear power plant is something that's not real in any of the seasons and that's such an iconic thing for dark like this nuclear power plant um, yeah fun fact the the director's father used to work on a in a nuclear power plant, I mm -hmm. think. He, said so. he mentioned something like that. I'm assuming um, it wasn't a positive experience based on how they're portrayed in the, um, <laughs> in the show. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so all of that wasn't, that was all CGI then? The, 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 every shot of the nuclear power plant is not a photographed real nuclear power plant somewhere? Yes, exactly. Wow. So that was completely uh, modeled and rendered in CG. Um, the smoke uh, or... Steam was also a simulation, 
And um, in many of the shots, you were only able to see the cooling towers, but then there were also shots where you see, uh, saw the, the gate and the whole facility behind the gate, but that was also CG. So I have lots of, of questions, and I'm, I'm, I suppose I'm coming, it, coming to, to Dark from the perspective of when me and Alex first sort of, or when me, Alex, and, and Rise actually had conversations about what to do, and where we might go with this and, and Dark was suggested. I thought, great, a science fiction program, I'll I'll watch that and there'll be there'll be CG effects everywhere and it'll be really easy for me to make notes about what is what is in the frame. And then I thought, well actually Dark's a really good example of, of sort of the various ways that computer processing um, and digital imagery constantly moves between sort of these invisible support roles and then these more sort of central obtrusive conspicuous present and then also back again and it continually moves between those two things and 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 a lot of writing on on cgi is is uh, i suppose about issues of disclosure about what is explicitly an artifact what is being veiled and i was i looked at some of the behind the scenes work from from rise i, I guess they're production reels and was looking at the uh, the sort of differences between the seasons and the type of images that were being rendered and and uh, yeah the first season looks like it's more about the layering of backgrounds largely speaking and that kind of industrial imagery of of cooling towers and the smoke and and, and other little bits so kind of little bits of crowds and dead birds perhaps and cows and uh, the little brass machine thing that I'm not going to spoil um but but I'm interested in and I've been reading about a big and small, so effects that you notice and effects that you don't, and the big ones like green screen and then the tiny little things, and they all have got to work together. This convergence of of simulations has to work together constantly. Uh, the big and the small and the micro and the macro, and they've all got to work together to maintain this the, the, the persuasiveness of the illusion. And no, no one bit, can I suppose that's where chaos theory one th and actually works really nicely with dark as a program if you change one thing one thing as, as a knock-on effect in the way that, that the narrative of dark works and it's kind of exactly like these visual effects where if one thing looks out of place you go right well what else is out of place and then it has a knock-on effect and so they all all these big and small elements have to work together and that's what I found really fascinating in the first season I, I couldn't I was really struggling to find the digital effects and I had to kind of spoil it for myself and look at the making of and, and Rise's production reel to try and find the seams and the joins and and, and so I kind of I, I, I appreciated the show anew because I was tr it's, it's you know I suppose that's a, 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 a desire on my part to know the seams of production but I just found it sort of really fascinating to try and find um, where it where it was and I suppose I my question is going to be could, when you then move on to series two is there a real right win now because I I thought the effects imagery was was a lot more conspicuous and a lot more you know you're sort of making material you're making time travel material it look it looks like something there are there are portals and things and so I guess if we move on to or I suppose your your work and your your labor you're moving on to series two did it feel like a real shift in the kinds of images that you were producing from that sort of relatively invisible effects? Did it feel like a real, okay, we're doing something different now for season two? Yeah, so basically 
the same way the, the, the team evolved and wanted to try more and make it a little more obvious, I guess, and also mm. um, based on the story, because the first one was everything was shrouded in mystery. Like yeah. you didn't know how time travel would, like how it works, who's involved, why it works. Um, why is everyone related in the thing? It's so confusing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So um, so that's why the second season also tried to shed more light onto these aspects, I think, and give a, well, basically show. An, it, it, I mean, it takes away a little bit of the magic, I guess, but it's also a part where you kind of want to, you're at the point where you, I think as a viewer, you want to understand what's going on. At least, I mean, you probably still don't understand fully what's going on since it's still dark, but... <laughs> At least you get to see something more um, that was hidden before. And that was also the most interesting challenge for season two, because basically the director approached us very early um, with, a, with, a, with a very, very early concept. Um, he basically did some, some research on the internet and found a few things and in elements that he found interesting um, that, she, that he showed us um, that were um, basically what 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 should have been the or um needed to be the 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 black matter which is i'm not sure how much i can spoil or not but i spoil away i I mean i I, i've already mentioned time travel and and we've gone a little bit down that road so listeners should be watching uh advanced but i'll let you decide where you you um wish to spoil it um there's some black matter all right we've spoiled it there's some black wonderfully animated (laughs) black matter but anyway sorry let's carry on (laughs) all right so yeah basically the um the director approached us with with this very early um concept of what the black matter should look like and it was basically just um a, a yeah, so black goo, um, and the way it was described in the first um, draft of of the screenplay was basically that it's a some kind of gooey black self swallowing matter, and it's almost alive, kind of. So, so that was what we were starting with, and um, and then we tried lots of different simulations and. Um, and we end, ended up having multiple layers that moved in um, different directions, and we we were basically able to adjust the the strength of how it like how far it would reach out, so so that we could um, make it more like a digital actor in a sense. So we could have it move more aggressively or be more silent depending on the situation. Um, so I think that was a big part basically of the second season like the, the black matter I, was uh, by far the biggest new cg element and as you as you s- correctly said uh, we moved into this more simulation and fx heavy approach basically which was i mean fx wise the first season was really more or less limited to um the the portal which we only saw in like two shots i had a question about about the about the black goo about the the dark matter um in in that i was i obviously that's struck me as being exactly what chris is talking about one of these explicit effects it's it's very much you know we are you know the audience whilst cued into sort of accepting the the integration of that image with the live action components is nevertheless sort of not expected necessarily to think this is anything 
that's been filmed in real life. This is um, this is you know something to be enjoyed as a, as Chris likes to say as a special effect. And spe- part of what makes something a special effect is they need to be considered special. So like this is the special of the special effect on screen. And I just like wondered if I was going to ask about a question of sort of whether the context of when these shots are used um, was part of your thinking at all. And just to sort of um, explain what I mean by this in a show like dark where so much of what is on screen is completely dependent on the sort of the complex story surrounding it particularly with dark because from in dark a shot can mean something very different depending on what way we're viewing this particular time we're in uh, indeed what time we're in um individual characters can be different versions of themselves or indeed entirely different characters um and it's interesting you said this sort of digital actor i mean the the dark matter is very much a sort of character in in the story and yet and yet sometimes like when we first see it it's in the sort of futuristic world where it's kind of normalized as part of like where we're now in a sci-fi landscape so like you know of course there's things like this in in a futuristic dystopia but seeing it turn up again in 1980s or or in sort of present day it has a very different sort of fantasy register so i just wondered you know did, did it matter as in terms of which shot did you know? Did it matter in terms of what's going on in the narrative when this appeared? Did you want the dark matter to be a different kind of character or to be looked at differently depending on how it's being used in the story? And if so, I'm sure that meant you had to kind of keep up just like us with what on earth's going on in ind- any individual moment or in any individual <laughs> shot, right? Or was it a case of like, okay, we've got what the character does. Now we can apply that character pretty much to any setting we like as long as we're we're true to the character of the dark matter so to speak um yeah so it was a little bit like um like when you're working on a character um you you have to create a facial rig basically and have to enable you so you have uh, you have to give the digital character the ability um to to show certain emotions uh, or do something uh, some different um yeah types of uh, facial expressions, et cetera. So with the black matter, it was similar in a way that, of course, it didn't need a facial rig or something like this, but um, we basically had a few um, elements built in which, so we could determine how fast it should move, um, how far the expansion should go. And um, we had this, this, special layer which enabled this transition from the um, unstable and wild black matter to this um, perfect round um, ball basically and another big question was then also because there was also this um, moment where it it needs to open up and swallow um, whole people and then also the other question was what's going on inside the black matter so all these were different elements um, that the black matter had to do, and they were also represented in the screenplay. Because um, as a as a contrast to what I was saying earlier, this self swallowing uh, chaotic black matter, um, it was also described as a very um, yeah silent and 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 safe thing more or less. Uh, so it was not that menacing anymore once it's in this stable form. So that was basically the contrast that we. Um, that we had to work with, and that was def- absolutely dependent on the on the scene's context, basically. Because um, another thing was also, and that's why I guess that's why we started that early with working on the black matter, because we had to have at least uh, 
the concept for the black matter had to be done before shooting since um, you can't tell the actors on set you know imagine that there is like this wild energy ball that nobody has ever seen before <laughs> um, without showing them at least something so um, that's why we had a very like a, an early concept um, that already could do all these swallowing movements and that already had these blue particles and the smoke um, surrounding um, the black matter before um, before shooting started. So when I was on set, basically, I could um, I could show the actors, you know, look at this. This is um, you know this is what's <laughs> in front of you, and um, it was a good way of um, yeah of showing people how they should react to it. That's really interesting because, you know, this is, you know, coming from someone that deals mainly in the popular discourse surrounding special effects. There's this perception, right, that, you know, the actors turn up on set and there's green screen and some tennis balls. And then the actors do their imagining and pretend like there's um, a space alien, Jar Jar Binks, uh, Gollum, whatever the sort of cgi character that you want to sort of instill in it and then they always tell these stories don't they where they turn up on uh, at the premiere and are shocked and amazed to see what work's been done since then where they've you know they've now witnessing their their you know the things they've been acting with appear on screen but it's and and that kind of you know progressive linear process from acting live to uh, VFX work is 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 in much the same way as dark plays with time it sounds like it's not quite so chronological in that to help the actors imagine, and I'm all about imagining on this podcast, but to help the actors sort of fantasize into their roles and fantasize what they're doing, you have to, the technology has to be there front and center from the start of the process, right? Is that common on most uh, shoots you've worked on or is that something particular to dark? Um, I think it's not that common to be honest because okay. most of the most of the work happens later and this it's also because of the decision-making process. So oftentimes, um, you, you have an idea of what's going to be in there, of course, but mm -hmm. um, it's just so uh, work intensive that um, there, you, you probably you will only have a, a previs of some sorts, maybe gray shaded or um, something like that. Um, but for the black matter, it, it was necessary basically to have it before because it was it, it's also I, I guess it's easier to tell somebody imagine there is a I don't know, a, a big UFO uh, over there or even if it's, um, you know, a, I don't know, imagine there's a big pyramid or something, something that mm -hmm. they've already seen before that they can imagine. But the black matter, I mean, everybody understands something else when you, when you say, imagine there's a black matter, it could be everything. Um, mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so I guess it was important to have something that represents the, the vision of the director already to show people. It seems like the and I'm going to go because I'm interested in the relationship I think between the, your labour uh, and and your role as the sort of compositor and as, as the final stage and I'd never really registered that that was the final stage and I think that that I guess frames what I'm about to, to say but it seems like the production of something like Dark behind the scenes matches a, a, a television programme that takes in where are we three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten time periods at least uh and is all about doubling and causality and the knotting together of family trees. And so there's a, a degree of, yeah, narrative chaos, I think. And, and, and chaos has often been described as a way of thinking about our audiovisual experience of 
kind of bombastic Hollywood cinema. I think it's Matthias Stork who's written a, a piece on chaos cinema uh, as part of a sort of sensory overload where you get fragmented, sh- uh, shot lengths are really short, um, you get an intensification of intensified continuity, you get fragmentation, imprecision, precarity, and your job is to sort of... And, you know, this is replicated presumably then in the CGI where you've got that thing over there matching together with that thing, a live-action plate, uh, in other contexts, perhaps a model, uh, digital uh, effects that are veiled, digital effects that are supposed to be registered as effects and, and special. And so your job is to sort of, as compositor is to sort of smooth out our understanding of an experience of, of of sort of chaos because you're touching up things and you mentioned about sort of bringing things all together and making them look photorealistic and so you're really trying to kind of ground all the images as if they were a part of one shot but also one time and one space so you're trying to do what we as spectators do by pulling all these time periods together of a digital effect shot that took two months and a, sh- a live action plate that was filmed uh, just a month ago or maybe three months ago. And you're sort of trying to pull in all these different... I'm not suggesting that you started right, uh, started your work in 1986, nor am I suggesting that you know they're still working on it in 2053. But there is a sense in which you are, you're trying to pull all these different time periods together and... and and actually, compositing is 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 a real. There's a real, and of course you know this because you are it. But like a real pressure to get everything coherent, and presumably that's then amplified by the fact that the program itself is so disjointed, but deliberately so, and in a good way. And, and so I just I just wondered: is your do you feel that sense of chaos when you're bringing all these things together, all these different elements, or is it is it quite quite a I guess a cathartic moment of just ah, just everything coming together nicely, and it looks like it was all part of the the same shot, and 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 yeah, we we don't see the chaos. Um, I guess it really depends on the production. So sometimes it's um, it's more chaotic. Sometimes um, it, it it you can just it's basically like watching a house being built or something like that. Like you can see every step. But most of the productions, to be honest, it's like you build a house, you basically uh, you you burn it down, you build it again, you um, you build another house next to it, you look at both houses close to each other or next to each other, and then you decide you don't want a house at all, you want a car. So <laughs> uh, I have a question about um, damage as well. You pulling because a lot of your work seems to be pulling buildings down as much as building them up. You end up having to to ruin them as well which must be incredibly satisfying <laughs> oh yes um, uh, th- we actually did that for the um, second season because there's this shot with yeah. um, Jonas in the future um, and the church is uh, destroyed and we, we, we built the whole church using um, using um, as a reference basically we, we looked through old books of church like northern church building it was like some kind of Danish architecture mm. And uh, we built a whole wooden church with everything that uh, it had to have, like structural integrity and everything. And then we um, created a simulation to destroy it so that we could make sure that everything looks cool. So I've always wanted to know that because I think I, I, I'm I've written on on Hollywood films that blow up London, and you have these spectacular scenes of ravaged buildings and cityscapes and, and urban decimation. And, and and I always wondered that whether you build whether you just animate 
the debris or whether you build the building first and then destroy what you've already built. So I've ne- I've always wanted to know that. So you build the building and then destroy it. Yeah, I mean, in order to make it look m- most like as realistic as possible, um, and since all these um, these um, basically all this, the physical simulations they re- they they are based on physics. Right, right. So um, you can give the elements a certain um, a certain weight, a certain density, etc. And um, and that's how you make it look realistic by just mimicking mimicking physics, right. which is also what we do in compositing. Because I mean, basically, um, the way we shoot movies, it's also based on physics. It's light uh, entering through a lens, and um, we have to do the same thing basically in compositing. When you match CG footage, you basically match the CGI footage um, to the physics that caused the the, the mm. shot uh, on set, mm. and. Um, just because you mentioned it earlier, so basically this this chaos. Um, so it, it it's really interesting how as if you're working as a compositor. At least that's my experience because I've I've um, I transitioned from being a compositing artist to being a compositing supervisor and then finally to a VFX supervisor. And you always like um, with every job you get to deal more with the bigger picture. I guess if you're a compositor you deal with the single elements of your shot. So you approach the CG artist and you know let him know, hey, do you have an update for this and that layer? And you're responsible for your shot. And then maybe the, if, if you're a sequence lead, you're responsible for your sequence. And then if you're a compositing supervisor, you're responsible for all the shots that your compositors are basically working on. Um, to make sure that because it's individual people working on all the different shots. Um, so if you have if you have five shots and every single shot has a different like the the building in the background is always shifted a little bit or um, you have a different color temperature. So you have to make sure that all these are coordinated. And then as a VFX supervisor, you're basically responsible for the whole show more or less or the the VFX of the whole show that everything basically adds up as as the bigger picture and of course you're the person that um that communicates with the director so you have to make sure that the director's vision is um accurately um displayed i mean this is photorealism as you said earlier it's not uh, you're you're matching up the footage that like you talked about sort of as part of the seams and, and matching up your digital footage with the live action plates and to make that that seam seamless it's it's obviously that's photorealism. It's not the the replication of the real world. It's the replication of lens based media. How light refracts. You talked about a lens earlier on. It's mimicking physics and it's mimicking the behaviour of a real camera apparatus. This is this is what I try and when when talking to my students about forms of digital realism. You have realism, and then you have a sort of photorealism, which is it's like those paintings which are really hyper realistic paintings of photographs it's sort of an abstraction it's a andy darley called like second order realism it's not realism it's like the realism of realism and that that layering i find really interesting and presumably yeah helps you if you're you're not thinking about what does a tree look like outside you're looking at the tree as if it was filmed at a camera with with distortions perhaps and light refracting off of it um which I, yeah I, I think that's an added that's an added thing and 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 within the pursuit of imperceptible 
images that you can't tell which was and as I said it it season one absolutely got me I had I had to ruin it for myself to find out what was digital and what wasn't so <laughs> yeah which um which it is also a really important step um as a set supervisor so in most cases or in many productions the VFX supervisor will also be the person that um, is present on set And uh, the capturing of data is basically a, a huge step in, in creating realistic visual effects. Because um, so on set, basically, apart from showing the actors where the black matter or how, how it looks like, of course, you have to um, collect all the data. So you, for every shot, you have to write down what lens was being used, what wow. camera was being used. Um, ideally, and nowadays, since we have the possibilities, Um, you so what we, uh, one tool that we used extensively for dark was uh, lidar scanner, so it's basically a very expensive thing that um, that you that can scan the environment and create uh, a 3D model basically. Right, and right. Um, I had that with me on on every shooting day, and I always scanned every single uh, environment. Um, takes quite a while because um, you have to scan from multiple locations since um, since you have to be able to view every angle and then you combine all these scans to one 3d model and that's what we used in order to be able to accurately place the black matter for example in the in the scene exactly where it has to go at exactly the size where it uh, uh, has to be and because um, sometimes it's also just guesswork and you kind of want to avoid um, having to guess how big something has to be for example We had something like this um, with the cooling towers. We had a shot and we put in the cooling towers and the director thought that they were too big. And we could, since we had all this data, we could tell him, you know, no, it's exactly the correct size at this distance. Of course, we can move it further back and then it appears smaller. But the scale was right. The scale was, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, interesting. I'd never really thought about that. The scaling of... of the, and you would know if it would read wrong as well. So you'd have to get the... And also the way that you talk about your work is you were on, you were there shooting and you were scanning. So it's an extra part of this process uh, where to create these three-dimensional models that then go into the computer hmm. that then get matched up with the all these different these areas. But um, yeah, fascinating. Well, and and to sort of add to that, um, there's a book by a scholar named William Brown that we cite on this podcast quite a lot, which is a book called Super Cinema. And it's talking about sort of uh, VFX imagery and digital imagery. And he makes the analogy in the book that uh, digital cinema is kind of like uh, Clark Kent uh, is to Superman. Um, or is it, no, it's, yes, in that, in the, you know, Clark Kent is really Superman. He's really the all-doing, all-knowing, can-be-anything-can-go-anything. He's not bound by any physics that we know, but he pretends to be the journalist weave wearing glasses, stumbling around the office, because that will endear him more to the people that surround him. And in a way, kind of digital effects does the same right and the digital effects doesn't have to be representational it doesn't it can be abstract it doesn't it doesn't it's not bound by um the, the, a kind of physics located in gravity and all the kind of stuff that we might expect in our day-to-day -day lives when we use the word physics um and yet you spend sounds like you spend a lot of your labor trying to make it look like clark kent trying to make it um you know look like it was filmed you know the idea of of making of making sure the dark matter looks filmed if you just say that out loud it's insane because it's not a substance that could be filmed you know it's it's and i think you know perhaps to extend that analogy that we like to play with on the podcast it's not just that it's a superhero it's that digital technology is actually you know analog 
celluloid photographic realism is Newtonian physics. It's gravity, it's, it's space, it's time, it's forces, it's things that are felt, it's things that we process in our day-to-day lives. But the thing that Dart gets at narratively and as an experience and in t- terms of VFX is that the, the, the reality behind all of this is, is something much more Eisensteinian, much more kind of, you know, abstract and, and brief history of time and the sort of stuff that when you start trying to understand, you go a bit cross-eyed because it doesn't seem to make any sense in terms of a living, breathing, embodied human being because it's, it's you know, so counter to how we think the world is structured when you actually take it down to its sort of granular level. So in a way, it's almost like there are two types of physics going on in in what you're doing there's the physics of digitality which is which is eisensteinian and 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 binary and numbers and abstract and and incomprehensible i guess if you let it sort of be its fullest and you're using that technology to bring to bear a photographed lived in reality so there's a again another parallel between what the show is doing which that a lot of what the show is asking you to do as a viewer is to almost after about a season and a half let go of this futile pursuit of chronological abc because if you start trying to do it it'll just it'll just make you cross-eyed and accept the kind of grander narrative that that time is cyclical that there is no time um that time you know and i don't know i don't know where this is all going a bunch of thoughts really but um it, it's interesting that you spend a lot of your labor trying to make something that is inherently not representational or it doesn't have to be in any essential way perform to a grammar that almost confines its possibilities rather than sort of flourishes it i don't know i I think i think it's a good analogy because um for for a vfx artist i mean it's a the biggest compliment is to tell him that you didn't see what he's done so you know if uh, because i mean i've i've been i've been working on shows where in the end you only kept the face of the actor basically and everything else was replaced uh due to you know sometimes you know you can plan ahead but sometimes um, decisions get uh, are being made so so late in the um, in, in the production that you you already shot the scene the actor is already working on a whole different project um, you can't just organize a reshoot or something and then you basically just end up recreating a whole a whole scene more or less and if uh, if the viewer doesn't see that like if you just enjoy the movie without having any other thoughts than you know being focused on the actual um, story and that's quite a huge compliment for uh, every person working in vfx i think I've, i feel like my work here is done because alex has made a reference to a visual effects text and and and, <laughs> and, the, and the merging is complete i i just think it's interesting that that and lots of writers would talk about this and and the digital aesthetics that realism was very quickly or very quickly became an aim and and certainly scholars writing on digital effects came up with a number of terms to try and make sense of the problem of digital realism we had simulationist perceptual realism second order realism photo realism uh hyper realism uh and then a couple of scholars um pulled all of that in together under the guise of remediation that one media remediates and looks like another the computer doesn't look like anything but what it does look like it can it can look like anything it can look like uh, a pencil line on a piece of paper it can look like black matter it can, or dark matter it can look like this and so the idea of remediation is that digital technology will always it's sort of rooted i guess in its sort of fundamental 
pastness again going back to this analogy of time and 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 what dark is all about the merging of time time travel these this combination of families and 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 this idea of remediation where new media technologies simulate older media in this kind of pursuit of standards of photorealism that we're not supposed to notice um i think yeah roots cgi in a fundamental pastness because it's always a recollection of analog media it's it's a recollection of lens-based media that is now being reworked and made available in the present thanks to these sorts of I guess the representative qualities of CGI or the appropriative qualities of CGI and pristine digital imagery that can always pull it, digital images, pull everything in and go, well, we'll look like that and we'll look like that and we'll bring that together. And so I re- I, I, the idea of time in relation to the digital is is, is a whole other um, portal to another realm. But there's there's I think there's lots to say about photorealism as itself, uh, and that's the term that you use to sort of bring together your role as the compositor to make everything look photoreal. That's rooted in a fundamental parsonist because it's going back to an older media, potentially. Let let me ask a, a slightly more practical question because as I say I, I feel like like dark where if we're we're we've we're gone theory, Alex. We've gone expanding, theory expanding expanding yeah. into an Apologies. abstract abyss. So um I, a question that I really wanted us to explore because it taps into something I'm very interested in is the process of making VFX on television, if indeed we're going to call this television, um, mm. because obviously it was on Netflix and that raises a whole other bunch of questions. But let's, if, if you're happy to accept that term, I am, um, versus <laughs> in, in f- feature film, because there must be some, I'm, I'm interested in the sort of the aesthetic re- differences, but uh, but let's start with the practical differences. Was there a difference in the working model if you're working on a on a show like this versus a, a feature film, or was it pretty much the same given Netflix's mode of distribution? Um, I think one big difference is uh, always in between uh, film and and TV shows is um, probably just the amount of shots. I mean, because um, it's just for for um for a show like dark which had um the first season had 10 episodes and then we had eight episodes for season two and three um and i think it was like 45 minutes or one hour so you have i don't know four times the length of a normal feature film for one season Mm. um so of course there you you have to create more and more shots and um but there's still some budgetary constraints like you cannot just um create the same style, um, I guess, of um, visual effects that you would do for a feature film, you start filling up by replicating, I guess. So we have some, like we have the Black Matter as one example or the Cooling Tower. So you have these specific CG elements that you need to tell your story and you basically use them in a different context for different shots. But you wouldn't... Um, you know, you wouldn't create five or ten different black matters because it's just, I'm not sure if it makes sense, of course, first of all, but then also um, it would be way too expensive um, to produce um, this amount of effects for just one TV show. And even if you look at um, at other TV shows, I think, I mean, the, the, the start basically um, where I think, I think so... Game of Thrones was basically a paradigm shift for this, I think. Because up until then, TV shows were always um, inferior in quality um, compared to um, compared to feature films. 
And now with Game of Thrones, it was the first time where, where they really took um, a huge budget and used it to make proper VFX. And you had armies and, you know, these um, these big big camps, basically, and, and dragons, of course. And everything looked awesome. Um, and I think that's really when, when, when it started, so that also other um, production companies uh, or uh, Netflix, for example, looked at, at these kinds of shows and said, you know, we can also do it for feature film. I'm interested that you raised Game of Thrones as an example there, because I think Dark shares an element of Game of Thrones. And I wonder if this is perhaps not something that's consciously felt, but it's part of the practicalities of making television production, which is that you mentioned the things in Game of Thrones that people think of if you say, oh, you remember those effects in Game of Thrones that were paradigm shifting, the big dragon fights, the armies, the things we all remember. But of course, they're actually from the sort of second half or predominantly from the second half of the series, right? And that, you know, if you go back and watch season one of Game of Thrones, you know, I'm sure there are lots of VFX work in it and the quality is strong, but it hasn't got the same level of complexity in that, in that the show's a little bit more austere. It's a bit more, it's, you know, there aren't dragons in it. It's much more like a historical drama. And so it's almost like the show had to prove that it worked without these big, huge effects before they would be allowed to play with the big effects. And there's a story I know from that series and that they tr there is a battle in the book that they were they did want to shoot but they just couldn't afford to because the budget was a lot lower those days so it's like one of the main characters gets his gets knocked out just at the start of the battle and then he wakes up and it's all over and it means they only had to hire a few extras right for the day rather than have to do the whole thing so it's almost like you know industrially they have to prove in a first season that the show works without the vfx before they can use the things that then become most well known for and there's an element of that to dark too in that you know your work that the, the, the explicit stuff that we're talking about it's it's other than the final sort of episode of season one it's not there so i mean is is that part of it in that almost like to get the budget you need to make the give the effects justice you sort of almost first have to prove you can do it without it which is not the case of say a, the latest marvel film or you know yeah i think there's some truth to it definitely because i mean i guess uh if if, if i were uh responsible for uh for all, for the budget at Netflix, basically, I, I sure definitely want to know whether an idea works mm -hmm. before I throw so much money on it. So, um, so I can totally understand that. That yeah, that's just um, the way it works, I guess. But what but what that interestingly creates is that is that there's this theory of of television by by a scholar named Jason Mattel who talks about sort of television narrative, and he argues that sort of what makes television different from film is that it's more complex that the storytelling is more complex, it's more characters. I mean, this is something that viewers can pick up on from themselves, mm. but but it's worth putting it into words. Um, but one of the things he says is that therefore actually special. Um, television often doesn't deal with special effects in the sort of wow that's a cool image sense of the word it deals with narrative special effects so the sopranos has special effects in it in that there are moments of oh my god wow in it but it's because a character's done something that you weren't expecting and you've been watching it for 10 hours so the level of investment is there so what dark seems to do which is interesting is it almost doubles that up is that the special effects are what we would call narrative special effects because the moment they step into the future and we realize that oh my god this thing's going it's going into the, it's not just a story of 90 it's not back to the future it's it's far more grand than that isn't both a narrative special effect but also involves your works you know the cgi special effects so it kind of 
doubles them together. So there's an added significance to to what you're doing in that it's not just like, oh, look, here is, you know, it's not Iron Man. It's not what you're paying the money for. It's this world fundamentally change the nature of the show simply through the act of display that I'm doing. I get to do the ta-da narrative moment. I'm not just there to accompany the narrative. I am the narrative. Um, I mean, did, did you feel any of that significance when you worked on that That actually what you were doing was, was altering the very nature of the show and there'd be a lot of excitement for this new kind of sort of VFX work in, in the series from the fans who had already fell in love with the show in the first series? Oh, definitely. It was so creating the 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 black matter and all the effects that surrounded, like the the portal, um, and also uh, if we go to if we jump to season three, mm. um, the um, the whole mirror universe and and um, and this other time travel effect, basically this this golden um, ball, basically this other time machine. So all these elements um, were were fundamental to the story and being in charge more or less or being able to um to um create these effects because um the the relationship between us and the director was was pretty good because i already i knew him since season two and i knew him from set so we you know we could just talk freely to each other and um it was a cool relationship because he was also giving us the the freedom um to explore all these effects and um show him what we think and then he would decide, you know, whether he likes it or not, or which direction um, he prefers. So that was a really cool step. And um, I also, like, since all these effects are so significant to the story, it was funny to see that um, compared to other projects I've been working on, the team was also super motivated. Like they, they, like most of the people working on the show were actual fans of the show, <laughs> which uh, doesn't happen. It doesn't happen all the time. Like for me. Um, First time I had that was while working on uh, Game of Thrones on season two. I was always listening to the audiobooks while working on the season, and I always kind of wanted to finish so that I could actually see it. Um, and then with Dark, it was for me and for the rest of my team, it was similar. Like m most of the people working there were big fans, and um, it was it was cool to see since you wouldn't be spoiled uh, basically by by working on it because it was still super confusing. So you could still watch the, watch all the seasons um, even if you've already been working uh, there. Because, I mean, seeing the Black Matter doesn't give away all the complex um, things that are going on. At the same time, I suppose the first season, if, if, if each of these seasons in, or series in lots of ways differs from the previous one and and the effects do different things or they go in different directions and and there's actually a lot of emphasis going back to this sort of series one conundrum there's a lot of emphasis on establishing a world in that first series that that is hospitable to the kinds of effects that would appear in series two and three and actually what the first series has to do in in perhaps a more veiled use of digital effects or a, a, a mode of visual effects where the chaos or the black matter is hidden, the dark matter is hidden, is to... Because it's dealing with three, if I remember, three time periods. 2019, 1986 and 53, I think. I can't... It, uh, and I really like the 80s stuff. I think the 80s stuff is, is terrific, actually. Um, but it has to set up a, a fictional world um, and, and create timelines and create disparate parts of and chronologies and set up relationships between characters that 
seem to kill themselves but then come back as you know I'm, anyway there's lots and lots of things where people yeah are their own are searching for their own father as a boy who's their brother as well anyway um so there's lots of that so the first series has to do has to has to show its visual effects but not tell it has to do something to create a world that because i think you used the word mystery earlier that the first series is a lot more rooted in in mystery and then i wrote as, as we move through and we get kind of the black matter we get the floating orb sphery thing we get and this is kind of amorphous space uh, as you said we get the conflicting parallel timelines in in series three time travel becomes not just something that the characters talk about and experience as it in, in as it is in the first series but it's now something that actually impacts the way that the world looks in series two and three and so there's something really interesting about the job of the first series to, to set up a world that is is believable and logical uh, and a space in which time travel is possible but equally when we shift to season two and the effects start to become perhaps more visible or bombastic or spectacular that we we have to say oh this is still the same world we're just catching up to it at different points in its life cycle um and so actually i think there's something to be said about the first series is sort of plays it cards plays its cards quite close to its chest it bluffs really well and doesn't give away its 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 tell if you like um and so yeah i mean i i do love certain episodes and this actually leads me to the i guess we're moving towards the end and i had a question about favorite moments or favorite things that you've animated but but um there are odd little moments in season two and three so episode i think episode one of season three deja vu deja vu um and there's an episode halfway through the middle of season two which i really like whose name escapes me but is there something across all those three seasons and all the different iterations of special effects that you've worked in both really visible and both uh perhaps more veiled or hidden is there something that you're sort of particularly proud of or particularly like we need to watch dark because i did that kind of thing <laughs> Um, well, there's many things, actually. Excellent, excellent. People are um, normally really modest when we ask that. They're like, oh, not much. So I'm really pleased you were like, I'm really proud of lots of it. So, yeah, what what, what bits are you sort of really drawn to? Um, so I think um, basically all these different... Um, so for me, the, the black matter is basically the biggest uh, thing because I, I was... Um, I was I'm so happy with how it turned out and, um, and that it gets... Um, it gets the the emotions that you were supposed to feel when seeing it. It, it I think it transfers it. Uh, it tells it very, very well, and um, especially also when um, when listening to it with sound, basically, because um, when we work in visual effects, we we never listen to anything. Like we only watch the pictures. We don't like. I don't know how the black matter is supposed to sound. Um, I, I heard it the first time when when watching the the finished uh, series. And um, and it was funny to see how the sound that it actually made, like this dark humming uh, kind of sound, um, that was exactly, I didn't know it at that point, but when I saw it uh, and, and heard it, it was exactly, it, it brought exactly the experience that I imagined it, it would have to be. And I, I also imagined when I was, um, when, when I was at the after show party, I met the guy who did the sound for the first time, actually, <laughs> um, since he wasn't on set, he was uh, basically an audio engineer post-production. Um, so we met and he was like, hey, the Black Matter, it looked so great. And I was like, well, it sounded so great as well. <laughs> and we were just basically complimenting each other all the time. And <laughs> mm -hmm. 
that's that's audio vision together, isn't it? You working together and, and him not knowing what it's going to look like, or maybe he did know what it looks like, but he didn't know what sound it would make, and you animating it in silence. And I've and I've and that idea of well, what sound do special effects make, and what sound do, do fantasy creatures or objects or matter make, is again a whole different. In the alternative timeline of this podcast, we'll do that as well. But yeah. there's, I think, the idea of sound that what what sound do special effects make, and and I just love this idea that you're at a party and going, it's this this talking about black matter. As you said, the sentence sounds insane, but um, and also it reminds me of what Alex said earlier about the the black matter as it moves through time, and I just had visions of it in the. 2020 with like a long grey beard and you didn't age it you know you didn't you didn't oh this is the really young dark matter and then this is the really old kind of craggy version but um yeah there's so much in the in the show there really is and and if people haven't caught it they they definitely yeah. should alex what, any what, final what, bits and bobs? well what i was going to ask what, what what was what give us um a favorite moment that perhaps we wouldn't even know or the casual viewer wouldn't know is a, is an effect or has any uh cgi in it that you that's you, a good question on <laughs> Ooh, let me think about that a little bit um yeah i, I mean I, I think i would say the um not only the nuclear power plant but um also the surrounding uh environment that's something that you might n- not necessarily notice that it's also partly or full cg so we have so- we have some aerial shots for example where we replaced uh i think 80 percent of the environment um, in some cases, and uh, you wouldn't necessarily know that it's uh, that it is CG if you don't if you don't see it. Basically, there are, yeah, there are and, a few um, there are a few bits. Sorry, there are bits that I remember seeing on on line where you're sort of using the green screen to really extend the geography of the space into the. And again, I suppose you normally think of the additions, the additive function of of CGI as much as the subtractive, erasing things, adding things in. But I think yeah, I was. And again, that's it's where your eye is drawn. There were lots of elements of, of the landscape and, and horizon lines and things that 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 characters are working with ru- com- complex but also rudimentary sets. And your job is to extend the world into the yeah. into the horizon and build walls and and stuff like that. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I guess yeah. uh, I suspect you probably had to do quite a bit of um, removing, removing the so-called real world, right? I suspect there were lots of planes you had to take out of um, nineteen the nineteen you know fifty scenes, or you know I don't, you know things in the sky or things that in the background from real life in the location shots. Did you have to do any of that, or you, did you, was it a tightly controlled set where none of that sort of bled into the photography? No, definitely. For all yeah. the exterior sets, we had to do that as well, and those are also more like uh, like the invisible steps that um, that you don't necessarily think of because it's it's like the first step. Like you get the footage, you first have mm. to prepare the footage and remove everything that's not supposed to be there sure. before you add um, the other things that you that you want to um, to uh, to be in there, and. Um, all the interior sets were, uh, were were shot inside the studio, so it was a controlled environment. Um, basically, we didn't have any any or almost no real locations. Um, it it was also perfect due to the the shooting circumstances. Like it's way easier to shoot in a controlled environment like a studio. Um, but uh, for the scenes outside, um, we shot in different places um, in and around Berlin, and. Um, yeah, we definitely had to remove some some elements like electrical towers, um, trees. Um, yeah, sure. B- 
buildings. You, you didn't have any star Starbucks coffee uh, moments, did you, where you had to remove something that they'd left on set or, or left it in or anything like that? Don't have to tell us if you left it in. We won't, we won't look for it. <laughs> Spoiler no, we that. sometimes had these things as well, yeah, of course. I mean, sometimes there's just something lying around, like also cables or, mm-hmm. I don't know, a crew member that didn't leave the frame. <laughs> um, out of like shot. Yeah, sure. Get out <laughs> of sure. shot. Actually, sure. I suppose one of the other things is that this is set in a fictional town as well, or a fictional space, and and mm. and so there's that added element where you're based from the real in the real world, but you are fictionalizing this 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 real space that the this Winden that may look, that looks like a sort of anywhere, but at the same time is 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 nowhere. I cannot go and go and visit it, but um, yeah, yeah, it's God, a little bit can... like Springfield in The Simpsons. So there's this wind and nobody really knows where it exactly is. Yeah, all the geography, um, but it's sort of sort of yeah. coherent. Yeah, I mean, I must admit, when I was watching it, I, I had a lot of online diagrams open of family trees and things like this mm. to make sense of it. And, and, and I guess we, we kind of had this conversation when we did uh, Inception. And, the, and this is and I wrote as part of my notes, you know, this is. This is using layering and conjoined spaces, but it's not Inception. It's not doing it in that way. And, and um, the way the way we appreciate the effects and don't notice the effects and and maybe that the effects are one of the most coherent elements of a story that is highly confusing at the level, or not confusing, but, well, yeah, confusing and complex at the level of narrative. And, and maybe the effects... And the compositing ground everything and, and at least create a visual coherency that hides both the disjunctive and different times and the mixing of media and also really brings together different different time periods and and and, and helps support I think the narrative complexity of of the show definitely yeah. so so one thing that I also um, really enjoyed was actually the complexity because there's so many shows nowadays that are um, that always have this um, the structure where you have to explain everything to the viewer without leaving any room for um, for imagination and um, I, I thought it was really cool when watching um, the first season I um, so I, I watched it with my wife and we all had these little theories about who could be who because I think it's episode three when they first show the different images um, of different people and actually start explaining it in some sense. And it was cool to be able to build your own theories and then after some few episodes you will see whether you were right or not. And I was like with one character, I think, um, not sure who it was, I think it was um, Jonas or so. But um, my theory was right and, and my wife was wrong and, and it was like, ah, I told you so. And, um, and that continued on during the second and the third season. And I think it's a very, it's a very thin line, actually, because, I mean, it, Dark was trying, like, was very confusing for some people, also um, of my friends. And I actually enjoyed this complexity. Um, but you kind of have to see how far you can um, go without being too complex. And that was, uh, but, but I thought it was really cool um, to, to have such a, such a show with, with, with such a different approach to storytelling. And then, well, one thing that we haven't touched on yet, but that I also thought was interesting, it was a German TV show. So um, I think before Dark, there was, I cannot imagine 
not one good sci-fi mystery TV show that was produced in Germany, to be honest. And um, that's a, a huge part of that, I think, is Netflix. Um, that that basically have different quality standards or just a, a different way of, of working with things and bringing this quality um, to a German TV show that was then also um, quite successful internationally um, was just amazing uh, for, for me to see as well. And um, because the whole narrative or the whole um, visual storytelling, I think is also, I, I, I don't want to say German, but it's definitely different than you're used to um, when you look at um, typical American productions. Um, Because there's not a lot of editing going on. So there's um, a lot of um, these wide, very wide shots, um, which which made, makes it a little more realistic, I think. Because it feels like you've been there and you watched it. And if you look at, because there's one scene where, where a person gets shot in the second season and there's no editing back and forth and shoot me, no, don't do it. And all that kind of, you know, the person just gets shot and that's it. And it looks kind of brutal, but also real. So that's also something from a visual storytelling um, perspective that I really en enjoyed. Mm -hmm. And um, just to add a little bit on the Germanness, we we grew up like I grew up in in Germany, but I I grew up with all these American movies. So I'm actually very um, familiar and used to this whole um, college thing with you know you have your little locker. We have we don't have those things in Germany. But it feels natural to me because I know it um, from all the movies that I've watched as a child. But then being able to see the world in the 80s, how I actually experienced it in Germany <laughs> and not um, this American um, kind of uh, 80s environment was also a funny experience because you don't see these things that often. Yeah. Now, it, uh, I actually had a note about the, the, the kind of shots in, in Dark. And you're right that there are I wrote shots are very often very calm and very languid or a space of contemplation and 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 actually that only seems to counterpoint the exactly the sort of chaos behind the scenes but a lot of the, the formally the program i think doesn't try to do too much it lets you take in this and i think that adds to the mystery you you take in this space and you're learning about the different kinds of characters and both their illicit relationships with each other, their um, historical relationships with each other, the their problematic relationships with each other, and, and you're trying to get a sense of, of yeah, their, their knotted connections. Um, and the, the program really lets you do that. It doesn't... And, and so, yeah, I, I absolutely agree that, that there's something... And maybe that was destabilizing my expectations of science fiction, but there was something really striking about the style of the program overall um, as a compliment or it, in which your effects are also a, a, um, a part. Uh, yeah. I, 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 yeah. I mean, there's lots to, there's lots to say and I want to, to, uh, to, yeah, we could go on for uh, forever we could go, we could go on to 2053, but we won't Alex. <laughs> but we won't. Don't worry. Yes. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, And I think if I'm going to take anything from this episode, well, I'm going to take lots from it, but a thing that's crystallizing is that you know, there's a lot of writing on science fiction as being sort of, you know, um, in many ways as invested in the process of scientific scientific inquiry as it is as a creative art. And that even thing, you know, if you think back to sort of early science fiction writers like uh, Jules Verne or H.G. Wells, 
or even someone like Arthur C. Clarke. These are very much thinkers of science who happen to be using fiction to sort of articulate their thoughts, but are in very much indebted to a sort of philosophy or, or a, you know, an intellectual... You know, they are doing science in a way that it's just they're doing it through fiction. And, you know, I think a lot of the conversations we've had today are exactly that, right? A lot of what needed to happen to make Dark was a lot of doing science. Um, and and the fiction was an important part of the motivating factor behind all that. But there's a there's a lot of science behind the fiction, both on and off the screen. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a, part of an ongoing sort of, uh, thing people often say about writers, but I think we could say equally about production cultures, VFX artists like yourself. You're you are in many ways part of that tradition. So it's been really wonderful to talk to you on that, Nicholas. Thank you. Well, let's um, Nicholas. You ha- now you have a podcast yourself, Nicholas. Is this right? Let's um, just talk about that for a second because it's just a, new, a new venture of yours, or is it something you've started for a while? Um, yeah. So uh, two friends of mine. Um that uh, are also visual effects artists um, and and me we basically started um, this podcast a few months ago um, with the first episode of the mandalorian so we basically just decided to get things started we had one um, episode of the podcast every week um, discussing the um, every episode of the mandalorian from our perspective so also a little bit we were also talking a little bit of visual, about the visual effects, um, about um, the special way of shooting the Mandalorian since they've um, been using this new te- technology of virtual production. Um, and since the Mandalorian is done now, we basically moved on to... Um, it's, it's a movie podcast, a film podcast, so um, we're basically speaking about, about films. So next week we'll, we'll have an episode about Groundhog Day-like movies. Cool. <laughs> Um, and um, it's in German, though. So um, <laughs> for everybody who knows German who, or who wants to learn German, go ahead. Please listen to it. It's called um, Film Collective 3000. So uh, Film Collective 3000. Um, and it's uh, on Spotify and uh, Apple and Google and so on. Terrific. Well, I want to listen to it. My German probably isn't up to snuff, but I'll have to get Chris to, to sort of listen with me and translate because you're much better at these things. But it sounds like a really wonderful um, show. So anyone who out there who does have the linguistic capabilities um, and is better than me in, in, in languages, which is not that hard a, uh, a bar to pass, to be honest, um, do check it out. And thanks very much. And, and is that on social media at all? Or uh, if people wanted to find you on Twitter or Facebook, or is that a thing? Or do we keep off such dark waters? Yeah, we have an we have an Instagram uh, which is uh, Film Collective three thousand, uh, and um, the the Twitter is um, Film Collective three cool. uh, K. Terrific. Well, we'll certainly um, we'll certainly be sure to follow you on those. Uh, Nicholas, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been really wonderful talking about um, Dark with you and, and, and for introducing us to the show, really, because we've been watching it sort of in bits and spots over the last few months. And it's been a really, you know, it's, it's made it's made the lockdowns uh, go by in much, much quicker than, than they would have otherwise. So thank you for that. And it's been a real th- pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it a lot as well. 
Well, thank you. Uh, of course, you can find us uh, at fantasy-animation.org where you can access all our blog posts and uh, the archive of podcasts. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Reddit at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research. Um, and you can send us an email if you like at the same handle at gmail.com. I always forget to plug that one. But um, if you do have any comments, feedback, thoughts, um, you can contact us that way as well. Um, give us a like, subscribe, um, do some star ratings, whatever you need. Helps us with the visibility as always. You've been really great at it thus far, but anything else will be um, helped and appreciated. Um, and that's been us for another episode. And we'll see you either next time or before now or somewhere in between. Um, but we'll let you decide that. Uh, take care in the meantime and bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.